Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity recorded in the pod at White City Place. I'm David Michon. Today, the design industry often blurs boundaries with the art world, and collectible craft and furniture is becoming increasingly popular, gaining market value and a prominence at major fairs. But that hasn't always been the case. In the pod today is one designer who was a pioneer of this category-defining arena of craft and making, and another designer who is at the forefront of changes in the industry today, experimenting with new techniques and materials. My name is James Shaw, and I am a designer and a maker. Um, my name's Fred Bayer, or I like to say Fred Bear because it's easier, isn't it? Everybody remembers that. And I make arty-farty furniture. Fred is an avant-garde British furniture maker working since the 1970s. He's a graduate of the Royal College of Art, where he later taught, as he has at several other schools and universities in the UK and the US. His pioneering, experimental, irreverent work gained him prominence from the start of his career. And in 2011, he was commissioned to create furniture for the library at the House of Lords as their first artist-in-residence. James not only creates objects and furniture, he creates the material they're made from. His best-known works are made from extruded post-consumer plastics, ostensibly saved from a destiny of centuries in a landfill. The plastic is dyed with pigments and shaped into playfully weird and hard-working functional pieces. His work has been exhibited internationally, including at the Design Museum, the V&A, the Irish Museum of Modern Art, and MoMA. So, I mean, we could start with that thing about labels and what sort of area, how you how you explain what you do and the area in which you work. Um, and I mean, I know that you have called yourself a furniture artist at various points. I have, James. Yeah. And what I guess what what I'm interested in what that's about and why you call yourself a furniture artist instead of a more sort of established term like a furniture designer, a furniture maker, or a straight-up artist. Yeah. Well, I could never be a proper fine artist because mm. I'm uh, out of that league, really. And uh, for me, um, language is always changing. So what used to be uh, craft was really has been really cool. It's been really awful, something to avoid, and come back to being cool again, you know, over time. So being a craftsperson is uh, is uh, flexible. Being mm. an artist is, fle- you know, all of these words are very flexible. And I think people spend far too long trying to... Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about that. And I certainly, I notice, like, uh, amongst my peers and even for myself, I'm sort of, I struggle sometimes with... I don't struggle because I actually don't really care myself what people, which box people put me in, if they mm-hmm. call me an artist, if they call me a designer... If they call me a maker, I don't really care that much. But I think a lot of people kind of, um, yeah, dip in and out of these things. A lot of people I know are trying to reposition themselves as artists um, because I think maybe there's uh, somehow a higher value associated with artists. And I guess I'm interested at that point, I guess, was it in the 70s that you re Reposition or you, that you positioned yourself as a furniture artist? Well, I said yes. I called myself a furniture artist mm. uh, when because before that, I just was there wasn't um, an outlet for what I did. Mm. There wasn't a crafts council, mm-hmm. and um, they were just unbeknown to me setting up 
a thing called the Crafts Advisory Council. And we can talk about that later. But there wasn't one. And, um, and so my only option, because of what the sort of thing I was thinking of making, was to sell through art galleries. But art galleries in England didn't want me because it wasn't fucking art. But in the States, where they'll sell you anything, uh, sell anything to anybody, and everything is sort of shopping, even art, um, every now and then they stopped selling fine art. The same gallery would stop doing that and then bring in somebody who did some sort of craft pursuit thing, albeit uh, studio-based. You know, you might just call yourself a studio practitioner. That's Mm -hmm. quite good, isn't it? Or something like I, that. I like that one. I, I can feel akin with that that's, one. But it doesn't really explain what you do very well, does it? No. And that thing of when you're um, when you're trying to explain what you do to someone who doesn't know what you do, then that's not very helpful, yeah. is it? Well, then you have to have a tag of some... Yes. Yes, no, that's right. So you do need a tag. But, I mean, that, that thing about America, I think, is interesting as well. Because, I mean, I find... Um, so, I mean, I'm based here in London... But most of my clients, the people who buy stuff off of me, uh, are probably American. I'd say I have more American people buying things off of me than I have uh, people from the UK buying things off of me, which is strange, you know, because I'm based here and I probably show a lot more often here. Uh, But there's just somehow a much more developed... um, market for it over there i guess there's what? more people buying things over there in my in my understanding of it, well from practical experience the mm. american the whole um the whole marketing process of art happens with uh, gallerists of various sorts looking at their punters and calling them collectors Mm. So they have collector societies, they throw parties for them, they get them pissed in all sorts of different situations, and they send them off on holiday. So the Americans that Mm. come over here may well be on a collector's tour. So they're going round from place to place, unbeknown Mm. to you, and uh, then they get back to the hotel and they what have you bought? Well, or, you know, what, well, I've been to so-and-so. So I have had one scenario at one of those collect Mm. shows Uh where there was a a collector group came in and somebody, something, who was the chairman of the Crafts Council brought them over to my stand and then he bought something off me Mm. and then boink, 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 four people from the collector's group bought something off me. Mm. So, Mm. So anyway, but you're saying that you sell a lot to collector's. Too. But in in the states, I guess was was the thing that. So was you do you show in the states? <clears throat> um, I have shown in the states, but uh, not I would not widely at all. No. For me, it just seems like there's more people buying things there, and maybe that's just because there's a lot of them. Um, a lot of people live over there. Um, maybe it's also that thing of people have much bigger houses over there. There's more space. But I guess also it feels like uh, people are more ready to buy unusual things in the States. And I guess, I mean, because that's what I make is unusual things. Um, And obviously you are also someone who makes pretty unusual things. So, yeah, I guess I was kind of interested in trying to dig into that a little bit and try and figure out if, what's going on there. And also because you, I'm also interested that you worked in the States for a bit, right? I mean, you were, 
you were involved with Wendell Castle, is that right? Yeah, well, it was a sort of no-brainer because there wasn't anywhere to sell things here and the galleries mm. weren't having me. So, And I'd heard that this was happening over there. So, yeah. And I'd also noticed that this guy, Wendell Castle, mm. was selling his studio work for telephone number prices. <laughs> and so who else would you learn best from mm. doing that? Mm. So I went there and he ran a little school as well that did making it was really there because it was cashing in on all the love that he was getting and the following that he got so he would mm. say well don't just come and ask me some questions come and be at my school and then you can watch me do it and then I'll teach you some stuff and I was the teachery person mm -hmm. to do with not the craftsmanship that was somebody else who did that but to do with how to have an idea okay Wow, that's amazing. But so what, I mean, because um, John, John Makepeace did something kind of similar over here. Right? He did. So what, I mean, what do you think is the difference between what John Makepeace was up to and what, what Wendell Castle was up to? Mm. Well, John Makepeace uh, put the making first. Mm. So your first year was learning how to make stuff. Yeah. So it was that whole thing about planing a piece of wood square Mm. tuning your plane, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. taking it out, making it so that it it did that, made that noise when when the when the shaving came off it. Mm. And whereas, um, and that also happened actually at Wendell's because Wendell was quite keen on training up people that might work in his studio. That was all mm. he, he wanted, you know, uh, really. Well, I mean, it. presumably he wanted those people to be working for, for him. him. I mean, yeah, I guess that, that thing about tradition, uh, I think, is interesting. I mean, because for myself, I don't really see myself working within any particular tradition. I mean, I had a kind of um, a design education. I make things, but I had a design education. So learning the making was always a kind of means to an end rather than an end in itself. And I would kind of learn particular making processes because I wanted to make a thing like this rather than the other way around. Whereas, um, I guess, I mean, so my, my sister's a cabinet maker and she kind of went through that amazing sort of cabinet making education where she did all the things that you're talking about, kind of like planing a piece of wood very, very square and the kind of first piece of furniture that you ever make will be your very beautiful workbench sort of thing. But that is, um, it's a tradition, isn't it? And then you, the thing that you kind of have at your core is these certain sort of tropes from the tradition that might be whatever, dovetail joints or kind of particular ways of looking at, at the material, looking at wood and kind of having wood at the core. And so I'm interested in how, um, how that operates and how that affects the work. And I suppose... It's. Uh, I look at someone like you and um, the fact that you kind of came through, you've got wood kind of at the basis of everything that you make, but you don't seem to be tied down by a tradition in any way. You seem to be very free and very kind of like able to play around with it in a sort of conscious way. Yeah. Well, I was lucky uh, in a way that you were not mm. in as much as every, well, there were, there were, <clears throat> when I was at school, the people who were academic mm. were hived off because mm. of the 11 plus 
into doing things where you thought about things and wrote about them and philosophized about them and but I, th- I think that's the problem, isn't it? I, that's then, one of the key problems is, is that we're separating off this sort well, of like if we're thinking problems, and making. We're not yeah. looking for problems, though. But that was <laughs> that it was a thing. And then yeah. the rest of us who and arty farty people are often, or maybe even usually, what they now know is called dyslexic. But in mm-hmm. those days, they didn't have that term, so they didn't know about what it was. They just like my like I said, my um, essays used to have. The spelling and punctuation and syntax of this essay eclipses any meaning it might have. See me, all written in red byro. So <clears throat> we were all sent off elsewhere where they taught you how to do things with your hands. Mm-hmm. But then there was an industry tradition all over the place of things where they needed people who had the skills to mm-hmm. do. They needed people who were learn, you know, who had that aptitude the haptic i think they call it aptitude mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they can think with their hands mm. and uh, but now everything has to be intellectualized because then it's easier to mark if you if if, if you've written something about something you can agree mm. or disagree with it or whatever but if something is just there with this thing sticking out of here and that thing there and it's blue or whatever, Mm-mm. it's dodgy. Well, and it's sort of, it's harder to see the intelligence that's kind of embedded into it, isn't it? Because, I mean, there is a lot of intelligence within those things, but yeah. it's, a, it's a type of intelligence that's quite hard to pin down and quite hard to kind of quantify. Well, only it? for people who are not yeah. arty. Yeah. yeah. I mean, pe- but that's the thing, it's... Uh, you have to kind of have that, you almost have to have that knowledge yourself in order to know what's going on there. I mean, um, so you... you uh, I, so tell yeah. me about your... Because I learned, so that was given mm. to me at school, you know, everything was like that. How mm-hmm. did you learn how to make things? Well, literally, I think I, think I kind of had to um, teach myself, really. I mean, because I didn't have any kind of organised making training you didn't go on courses um, or... i didn't go on any on any courses but i went books uh, DIY i probably or... read some books uh, uh i watch a lot of youtube videos ah, YouTube, I see, yeah. youtube's great amazing and yeah. i mean that's that's definitely something is the school of youtube is uh it is something else fantastic you know I you can learn everything a multimeter yesterday well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah that's it's amazing isn't it yeah. but but I think that I mean the main way I learned was from uh, when I was at college, uh-huh. and I studied, like I say, I studied design. So we weren't actively taught making, but we had this amazing workshop that was right next door to the studio, and most people weren't particularly engaged with it, but a few of us were. Um, most people were kind of trying to do things on computers. And I would always uh, jump straight to the workshop whenever I could. And luckily, there was kind of like a lot of um, a lot of technicians there, and not so many students. So I could, when I wanted to make something, I could just go around all these these people who had all this skill, um, most of which was a sort of remnant of the the kind of now disappearing manufacturing base of, of the UK. Most of these people were sort of people who used to work in aerospace or furniture manufacturing or whatever all these things which don't particularly exist so much anymore um and i could ask them how how can i make this this thing that i've got in my head and then they'd teach me that particular kind of isolated skill i suppose 
So it is that thing of kind of having a bunch of these um, sort of almost disparate um, bits of knowledge which I can connect together to to know how to make something without being bound by, yeah, a tradition, I suppose, mm. without having to feel like I have to conform to any sort of uh, a tradition. Mm. Well, I, I didn't... Um notice as mm. i was accruing all these skills it mm, was just mm. part of life's fabric mm. everybody did everybody did either woodwork or metalwork or both yeah uh and uh, a lot of people a lot of the um a lot of people just farted about at yeah. the back and <laughs> stuck their chisel through their fingers and that sort of thing but you know i really loved it yeah and then i i did a level as well which meant mm. it was just me and the woodwork teacher together Mm. for hours and hours and hours mm, and mm. it was great and he was a lovely lovely man i can't remember his name but a lovely man but it was down to him that i went to art college because he said okay you've got all of this but if you're going to be making things for the whole of your life mm. uh you're not the sort of person who'll be want to be told what to make mm. and if you want to invent the things that you're or you know be cause the things that you're going to make to happen, then you've got to understand about all that. So you've got to go to art college. Mm-mm. Best bit of advice, probably. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. In conversation are designers Fred Beyer and James Shaw. Then I've heard about your the summer job that you had then. Um... And I wondered if we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because I didn't get into art college straight away, unfortunately, because I didn't have English language, English yeah. fucking language. Because yeah, that's a you have to have it. Mm-hmm. I think I took it every... That's why, I, in fact, that's one of the reasons I stayed on at school mm. was to take English language over and over again. I think I took it about seven times. Never got it. Yeah. Anyway, so then I hadn't got to art college. I'd been for my local college interview and they uh, wouldn't have me. And so that was sort of it, really, because it was your local art college that you did your foundation year. Mm. And then you were allowed to branch off into any way you liked. Uh, So I went and worked on the M6. Yeah. As it was going through... um, just to the right of the Lake District, mm. through what my mum calls those velvet hills. Yeah. And basically we trashed this valley <laughs> by putting a motorway in it. And I mean, I find this so wild because it's sort of like, I guess I've the motorways are just something that uh, have always been there as long as I've been alive. And so the idea of sort of building the motorways just feels very... Um, Feels quite exotic and detached it was, it was, to me. It was amazing. I was there most of the year, actually. I wasn't just mm. for a summer holiday because I hadn't got in. Mm. And every now and then I went off for another interview. I went for nine interviews. Mm-hmm. And eventually I got to Canterbury, I think it was. Well, yeah. It was, Canterbury. Yeah. And the man said, looking down the thing, Blimey, you're really keen to go to art college. I think we'll take a punt. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, so we're, we were on. Um, but anyway, but the motorway, oh, God. It was, there was no electricity. Mm. I hear that without electricity, you wouldn't, um, is that right, <laughs> really be able well, to make well, I mean, quite a lot of things. 
I mean, uh, that I mean, that's yeah, that's because so when we were talking about that before, you were saying that you were there building these motorway bridges, and all you had was a handsaw, a hand screwdriver. So I told my teacher, yeah, I'm going to apply for a job on the motorways. He said, well. You're lucky, he said, because normally the people who work on them would have started at 15, mm. and by the time they're your age, they would have got skills. So it isn't an unbelievable thing mm. that you are up to that level. And you don't want a labourer's job because you don't get hardly any money. But if if you're on the tools, you get good good money. Yeah, I find that pretty wild. That So one, I mean, I think all those motorway bridges, I find them quite amazing. Some of them are just these sort of very beautiful sort of sculptures out in the middle of out in the middle of the wild and exactly. the fact that those that you could just build those without any electricity is quite hard for me to get I my know. head around just I because know. i think like yeah with the way that i've sort of been been brought up making things you know we weren't we wouldn't even there was begin never the to sound of about. a generator the yeah. loudest sound would be well the loudest sound was the guy just a little bit further down blowing up the rock mm. And he was late with his blowing up the rock. So instead of doing one thing a day, he managed yeah. to do three yeah. by drilling the holes and then putting the charges down as he ran past and then diving behind <laughs> a rock. Health and safety wasn't really there. And then showers of a rock would come up. These days, <laughs> you know, they do it once. They wire it all up. They put yeah. cages around everything. Yeah. The whistle goes, we all... Uh, we, I say they, because I don't do it anymore. Yeah. Get, but we just used, we just dodged behind something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because that's, I think that's what I find amazing about it is the fact that even now there is something sort of futuristic about all of those motorway structures and the sort of that idea of kind of, yeah, 60s and 70s modernism still feels like a vision of the future. So the fact that this was all built by uh, yeah, by hand using hand tools feels like a kind of disjoint in yeah, my head somehow. It's, quite hard, it's hard for me to get. Well, my there head was quite that. a lot of tooling from certain aspects, like the asphalt was put down by a machine, and mm -hmm. something. they didn't shovel the concrete together. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's probably freed me up quite a lot, and yeah. certainly got me away from anything to do with the arts and crafts movement. Or yeah. Yeah, yeah. That all came back again, or they tried to make it come back again when I went for my B. Well, it wasn't a BA then; it was whatever it was. Mm. Later on, because they all of them worked out of the arts and crafts tradition. What What is it that you? Um, you see, the thing is, the, one of the big things that I um, uh, find different between myself and you is I was in an era where everything was going to be amazing mm. we were just going to the moon mm. we were just building motorways mm. the cars were getting shinier and chromier mm. um you know we um you know it was all it was all positive forward things but mm. for you guys uh, the news brings more and more downers mm. on future in all sorts of aspects, but you somehow got to cope with all of that and be positive towards the future yeah. by doing the things that you're... I mean, I could make, you know, things that were basically like... Um, and I did things... Well, first of all, reflected um, the old crafts that were dying, mm -hmm. but re-enhanced them because of the 
spaceships of the future might still be riveted, you never know, or, well, aeroplanes' wings were being riveted, mm. but in a different way than 19th century bridges were riveted. So I was looking at the differences between those things and making a piece of furniture that had a bit of that in it. Mm. You know? mm. So, And so that's good. So, But you're, here we are, you know, the, the, you know, hardly want to chop another tree down in case in case it all goes tits up. So how do you, or do you just turn it off? And you, How do you get on with that? Um, I mean, no, de- definitely not turn it off. I mean, for me, I think that's a massive spur to to make things, to, to do stuff, because it's so obvious that that we need to change, change the way that we're doing things. And um, I guess trying to think about sort of alternative ways of being is something that um, I think is at the core of kind of making stuff now, even if that ends up being sort of quite a convoluted route to getting somewhere. I think that that's still, uh, you know, that's that's a part of it. I mean, I guess, um, you know, a lot of my work that I'm known for is, is about sort of de- trying to deal with that in some way whether that's like the thing that I'm pretty involved in now, which is sort of plastic and taking waste plastic as a sort of resource that's 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 there for us to use and trying to explore that that material in in kind of a cultural sense and what it means and and how it what it kind of symbolizes for us. Uh, but then also just trying to use this stuff up because it's there and it needs to be to be dealt with. Um, so to make a lot of things to use it up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I mean, like we can all tend to our garden and um, you know use use the stuff that yeah, that, that we can, kind of thing. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah. I mean, I definitely don't see myself as sort of like trying to solve any problems, but no. I definitely put those problems as being kind of. Uh, they influence what you might think and where you definitely, might go. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Without meaning to put words in your mouth. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. happy to have those words okay. put into okay, my cool. mouth. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that... And I think that that's something that I see a lot of people of my generation kind of, kind of doing is that the work has to be connected to all of these sort of um, uh, problems or issues that are kind of... in. Uh, around in society and and the world and i think that uh yeah as as someone whose basic task is to kind of deal with materials and producing things that's that's the area where a lot of our problems are and so it's uh, it makes sense to be kind of working at those from the inside i think yeah i think and now that there's going to be no jobs anymore especially in <laughs> making things because robots do it and all yeah. that sort of thing yeah. then we're all going to be doing what i've been doing all the time which is yeah. having my own little shed yeah, or whatever it is definitely and making stuff yeah and a man with a clipboard from health and safety isn't going to be coming in <laughs> saying i'm sorry but you can't do that like that you can't do that like that mm. unless you know, unless um, you're trying to claim for having chopped a finger off and then somebody will come and say, well, look, you haven't got a guard on that machine or something like that, we're not paying you, which doesn't mm-hmm. help anybody. But anyway, yeah, so so the world is probably going to be full, much fuller of people doing little yeah. things like yeah. you do and much more of that sort of... Um, uh, 
way of going about objects being created. Mm. So, uh, so do you see yourself as somebody who is showing the way to um, some people like that? Do you do you recommend that people mm. might? Um, um, mm, no, no. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely not not showing the way. And I mean, I think that the the kind of like path that I've struck out in the kind of I guess six years that I've been doing what I'm doing. Um, I think is has been highly kind of reactive to the situation that's been available to me. And I think already in, in the past six years, I think the situation's changed. So I don't think it can really be a sort of uh, a template for, for someone starting out now. Um, but, uh, but I guess I would hope that within the work, there might be something that, uh, I think I think that I might hope that the work might be some sort of template for something else. I mean, um, I think Grayson Perry talks about in those those wreath lectures that he did a few years ago. He talked about um, the way that art and design is this can be this sort of like very fertile and free playground for experimenting, which is outside of industry and and the kind of like commercial walls of doing things. Uh, where you have people who are able to, yeah, just sort of freely play around with things and that that can then become uh, a sort of testing ground for things that eventually some of, some of those experiments and tests and, and pieces will settle down and become something that becomes very widely disseminated. Hmm. Most of them won't. You know, most of these things will just end up sitting in the living room of... A collector. A collector. Yeah. But some of them will end up being the thing that, uh, you know, becomes very, very widely available. Yeah, it might do. Yeah, it might do. There you go. That was a conversation between designers Fred Beyer and James Shaw. This has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DNN Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michaud, recorded and edited by Sean Crook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And please subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, give us a rating, and write us a comment. It really helps. Until next time, 